This is Undark. We're a science magazine published by the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 5. I'm David Corcoran. Our lead story comes to us from the most unlikely place we've visited so far, a high stretch of the Andes Mountains in Colombia that is home to a hummingbird species almost no one has ever seen. Reporter Alexandra Osola traveled there for Undark, and in the process she uncovered a remarkable story about the interactions between humans and endangered species. Alex, hello. Hi. So, first of all, I have to say this was one tough journey, not for the faint of heart. Where exactly did you go and why did you do it? Yeah, so I uh, had read something really small uh, online about a year before I ended up booking this trip. And one of the great things about being a reporter is that if you find a thread like that, you get to pull it. And I did that to its logical end, and I realized there was no way to avoid going on this trek into the Sierra Nevada. Not that I would want to anyway, because I love South America and I love hiking, so it was a good combination for me. Tell us a little more about what you uh, read about this bird that made you so interested. Well, it was a really short piece in the magazine Science, and it was just a brief thing saying that its uh, taxonomy had been reclassified. So the helmet crest used to be just one species, the green-bearded, the blue-bearded, etc. But then the article was just saying it was now divided into four. So technically, the blue-bearded helmet crest as a species is only a couple of years old. But uh, I contacted the study authors and said, why is so little known about the blue-bearded in particular? And they said, you know, this is a really big story and no one is talking about it. So that initial conversation was enough to get me to dig even more into this topic and just learn about the Kogi and learn about what this weird helmet crest thing is even about. So uh, eventually that sort of built up to needing to go try to find it myself. So Sierra Nevada, that's a, that's a part of the Andes Mountains in Colombia. It's the northernmost mountain range in South America, I believe, and it's the highest coastal mountain range in the world. So once you're on the snow peaks at the very, very high peaks, you can see the ocean, which is madness. And the uh, bird that you were looking for, the uh, hummingbird, the, called the blue-bearded helmet crest. So how did it get that name? Well, it has a blue beard and it has a crest. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know about the helmet part, um, but it's it's a really distinctive looking bird and it moves in a way that is very atypical for hummingbirds. I think a lot of people associate the word hummingbird with the, you know, the kind of bird that's going to the feeder and it, its wings are flapping so fast you can't even see them. Yeah, it kind of hovers. Exactly. And this one, from everything scientists knew before, it probably wasn't like that. It uh, it moved a lot more slowly. The environment is very cold. And they didn't even know what it ate. They still don't. And what does it look like? It's small and it's kind of fluffy. It looks like uh, it's about five inches tall. And the males have this bright blue beard. And the females are a little bit sort of less colorful, um, but still very distinctive to be a hummingbird and to be this hummingbird. What is so surprising about your article um, is that it's, it turns out to be not just about an endangered species of hummingbird. It's about 
uh, an endangered species of, of people. So the more I learned about this bird and where it lives and the conditions under which it exists, the more I sort of saw a distinct parallel between it and the people around which it lives, which is the indigenous Kogi tribe. So this is an indigenous tribe that's been there since uh, before Western civilization. And because it's so high, um, they're really kind of cut off from, you know, what we think of as civilization. What are they like? Well, I had done a little bit of research beforehand. I had read a book uh, about the Kogi people and a little bit of their history and mostly the the sort of context and angle of this book was how closed off the people are and just how difficult it is for outsiders to understand how it is that their society works and uh, their their history, which is quite fraught, especially with Columbus and other colonizers coming there um, and really isolating them into the highest peaks of this mountain. They're an extremely religious people. Um, they dress in all white and they're also very separated as far as the roles of the genders in their society. So the men uh, will spend all night in this communal hut talking about uh, their religion and, and how they're going to run their um, their village and farming and things like that. And the women are mostly isolated to their individual homes. Um, but as far as where the Kogi live, they didn't used to be quite so isolated on these high peaks. Before colonizers came to this part of the world, they had full range from the snowy peaks all the way down to the ocean. So things like seashells and, and things that you could only find on the coast are extremely sacred to them and continue to be to this day. Are they uh, suspicious of outsiders? That is an understatement, yes. <laughs> um, so we, in the course of our trek, ran into two groups of Kogi people. The first time it was our second night camping out. We had just set up camp. Um, someone else on my hike was just dipping into the river. And uh, a man walked up dressed in all white with long hair, uh, missing a whole bunch of teeth, and uh, with hiking boots or rain boots up to his calves. And he was accompanied by a man who looked a lot younger, probably about 17 who didn't speak any Spanish. So the first man we learned his name was Santiago and he said, you can't continue. And if you want to continue, give me rice and give me uh, some more food that you have, maybe some oatmeal and about 30,000 pesos, which is like $10. And we did that because we wanted to continue. And also because his younger companion was gripping a rusty machete and mm. seemed really, really mad. So we gave him what he asked for. He went on his way. And then as he was leaving, he asked for one of the horses that was carrying our stuff. Mm. And at that point, we said, no, that's very expensive. We're not going to give you that. So uh, it was a very threatening encounter, to say the least. Um, and then the next encounter we had, we were up in the highest part of the Paramo that we reached, where we suspected that the bird lived. And this man was named Alberto. And he was less threatening in that he wasn't visibly armed. And he was telling us, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I, I understand that you uh, are here looking for this bird. I don't really understand anything about the bird, but okay. Um, but look, my boss is coming up tomorrow and you really need to leave. And we said, look, we were just going to stay one more day. Like, I, you know, can you just be a little bit flexible with us? And he said, you know, I understand. I have a Western education. 
which I learned later he had gone to school in one of the towns about a three-day hike from where we were at that time. He said, I understand you, but I have to do this. And if you don't listen to me, I may or may not have some people up on the mountainside above you who are armed. And we said, we said, okay, so we're going to be leaving tomorrow then. So it was a day earlier than we intended, but uh, probably the right call. It, it turns out that the relationships between the uh, Kogi themselves, uh, between different communities, uh, are pretty complicated, and their relations with the outside world are also complicated. And then finally, um, you have their relationships with wildlife. And it turns out that that is the biggest complicating factor of all. I could talk about what they do for a living and how that affects the natural environment. Sure. So as the Kogi have been increasingly isolated to the Potomo, where very little grows, uh, pretty much no crops can grow there except for maybe potatoes if you're lucky, They've raised an increasing amount of livestock, mostly cattle. And cattle, I mean, it's a good place for cattle in that they have a lot of room to wander. Um, this is technically a national park, so they're not really supposed to be there. But the Kogi kind of do what they want. It's quite remote. So, you know, if they're going to have cattle, they're going to do that. Um, but the problem is that for the cattle to graze, the grass tends to be very spiky and can end up collecting all of its dead tissue around it. So in order to have the best possible grass for the cattle to graze, the kogi will occasionally set fire to the Potomo. And this is a practice that's done all over the world. It's done in other parts of the Potomo, this, you know, quote unquote, slash and burn agriculture. The problem is that in this particular area, the fire can just go and what ends up happening is that you destroy a huge amount of wildlife and habitat and things that, you know, these incredibly rare creatures would eat and live on. And it's really, really destructive. Um, have, have the Kogi always raised cattle or uh, is this a relatively recent occupation? It's pretty new for them. Um, they Before the arrival of colonizers and before they were pushed to such such high altitude, they used to do a lot of communal farms with other indigenous tribes in the area. So that would mean that they would travel these long distances and together farm these massive, massive swaths of area of land. And gradually, the numbers of those indigenous people have petered out. And they have been, the Kogi have been among one of the few tribes that's been left. So not only do they not have access to the land anymore that they used to farm on, but they don't actually have people to farm it. Do you know why this uh, this bird is so rare? Does it have anything to do with the uh, the way the land is being used? So scientists who have learned as much as they can about this area and about how the Kogi are treating it, uh, they believe that it's because of the burning that the Kogi are doing for their cattle that is really decreasing the amount of food and the area on which the helmet crest can live. So the helmet crest, because it is a very high metabolism, it's a hummingbird, it needs to eat a lot. And when you burn that area every five years or so, you're really limiting the amount that it can eat in any given day. So the thought is that it's probably, well, until it was rediscovered last year um, in March of 2015, I actually knew about the story before then. Um, they People thought that it might be extinct. 
So uh, other scientists and conservationists who have been up into the Paramo have taken note of this, and uh, some of them have proposed some solutions to uh, kind of resolve the contradiction between what the people must do to survive and um, what is compatible with good uh, conservation practices. What are some of the ideas that have come forward? Well, I think one of the most striking things is that no one's suggesting that they stop burning completely because it's just not going to happen. When we had the brief opportunity to ask one of the Kogi people who asked us to leave where we were about this burning, they said it is not sanctioned by them. It was people who were acting of their own volition, and they got in big trouble within the Kogi community. So even still, even when the Kogi are opposed to this practice, it still happens. So burning is always just going to be there. But some people, some locals who are not Kogi, have suggested that the government or the National Parks Department enforce stronger penalties on people who do burn this area. Um, The National Parks Department happens to think that this is not very feasible. Um, And when you look at the sheer distances involved, I mean, it took us three and a half days to get from the nearest town up to this place. I mean, there's no way they could station someone up there. It's just not possible. It's also really hard to find out who did it. So as far as inflicting greater penalties, I'm not convinced that that'll work. Um, But some other options are things like ecotourism. But the risk that you run into there is that while some of the ecosystem will be protected, some of it will also be damaged. And you might even be further infringing on the Kogi's tenuous way of life. It sounds like a really tough contradiction to resolve. Uh, do you, what are the prospects that um, uh, at some point uh, the, the people and the wildlife will learn to coexist? You know, I think that'll depend on a lot of things. I think gradually the Kogi are starting to warm up to some outsiders who are coming to them with with understanding and with empathy, who aren't trying to conquer them, who are trying to say, we want to make your lives better. I had the opportunity to speak to a nurse who had spent her whole career walking to and from a nearby Kogi village. This is not up in the Potomos, this is further down. And she said that once she had, when she first started going there, people were not open to the idea of the medical care that she was offering. But after she explained what vaccines can do, they were really into it. And they were very open to the possibility of getting it. And in fact, a whole bunch of the kids and even some adults did end up getting vaccinated. So if that's any indication, the Kogi are open to things that they think will benefit them. But it's all about coming at it the right way. And I think in a lot of the conflicts between conservation and indigenous groups that have happened across the world, it's because people don't come into it saying we want the same things. They come into it saying you are going to infringe on how I am living or these resources that are more valuable than you can understand. And when you start with aggression, you don't end up with a happy compromise. And these compromises are really hard to find because, man, you just do one little thing wrong and it all falls apart. So, Alex, I have to ask you, and and uh, listeners, if you want to read the article in full, uh, I have to caution, this is a spoiler alert. Um, did you see the bird? I did. And uh, what did it look like? What was it doing? It was flapping slowly. <laughs> it sort of looked like a really fuzzy softball. Um, it was a female, so it didn't have the bright blue that I was hoping to see. 
Um, I also didn't have binoculars, so I didn't maybe get the best look. How did you know that it was a blue bearded helmet crest? Because it was different than anything else we'd seen. It mm-hmm. it just looked. It you know how birds sometimes look really sleek, like they're designed to fly through the air like fish in water. This did not look like that. This was <laughs> just a fluffy little softball that flapped awkwardly, and uh, nobody quite knows what it eats. So. It wasn't feeding, so we still don't know, but it just sort of perched on a branch, and we all tried not to yell, and we tried not to scare it away, and it was an amazing moment to be one of, like, a dozen people who have seen this bird in the past century. Well, Alex, this was quite a journey and quite a story. Thanks for doing it, and thanks for joining us to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. Alexandra Osla is a freelance science journalist based in New York City. Her report, Endangered, a Bird and a Tribe, is on our homepage, undark.org. And now we're joined by Paul Rayburn, who writes the science media column for Undark. Hello, Paul. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, so today we are talking about a concept called fair use. What is fair use? Fair use comes out of copyright law. And the idea is, to go back to the basics of copyright law a bit, the government gives people many, many years of protection for their artistic works and creative works under copyright law. But in return for granting that legal protection, the government says, you must allow your material to be used in, you know, modest ways to, you know, further uh, our nation's culture, to further the conversation. Of course, science writers, without thinking about it, do this every day. Every time we quote a phrase from a published scientific paper, that's an example of fair use. You know, we don't think about it, but that language is owned by the people who publish the journal or or by the authors of the article or whatever it is. Certainly not by us as science writers, but we're allowed to do that routinely because of fair use. So give an example. So so an example of fair use would be, well, here, here's, <laughs> how about an example of something that should have been fair use? A couple of professors at the University of California uh, wrote a book in which they wanted to quote from the New York Times, and they included three quotes. Each quote was about 90 to 100 words long. And everybody that I talked to for my column said that should have been fair use. That should have been fine for them to do that. Those are a little longer than quotes we use as reporters, but they wanted to make a point about the tone of the language in those quotes. However, their publisher was very skittish and said, you need to pay the New York Times for this. And so they went to the New York Times and the Times said, okay, you can pay us. And it wound up costing them something like $1,800 for three 100-word quotes. Ouch. They had to pay the New York Times? Well, they did pay the New York Times. The question is, did they have to? And and most scholars of copyright law say, no, that should have been fair use. Th- those quotes could not be substitutes for the articles that they came from. In other words, it wasn't if the professors were trying to make money by using language from the New York Times articles. They were trying to have a conversation about a scholarly issue. And so it should have been fair use, but their publisher didn't want to take the chance that it might be judged otherwise. So it was their publisher who required that they contact the Times and offer to pay. 
This uh, begins to sound incredibly muddled. How do you know whether something that you're quoting is just is fair game for quoting or whether you might have to pay for it? Well, uh, as, as one of the first people I interviewed said, it's very easy. Here's how you tell if uh, you have to pay for it or not. You quote something in your story in an undark column, let's say. We quote something, and we don't know for sure if that would be fair use, but the way we find out is if somebody sues us and a judge says, no, that wasn't fair use, you have to pay a lot of money. So that's the situation. So uh, it's a matter of kind of predicting whether a, a publisher or the owner of some form of art or literature or whatever is going to go to court and sue you and you might get uh, uh, stuck in litigation and uh, it's just more trouble than it's worth and you might as well pay the money. Right. So some publishers and reporters and writers in some circumstances will be very cautious. Now, the people who say that fair use is easy to understand, and there are some scholars who say that, say that the courts have made it easier and easier over the past decade to predict what's fair use. And one of the big issues is something called transformative use. It, it wouldn't be a good legal argument if it didn't have unusual <laughs> words used in unusual right. ways, right? The more syllables. The more, right, exactly. And what that means is that, in other words, a science writer uses a quote for a purpose that's different from what the original author used it for. So, for example... In a published scientific paper, scientists are speaking to professional colleagues and conveying the research they did and what the implications are. When one of us writes a story about that published paper, we're doing something different. We're commenting on that paper, even if it's an objective, straight news story. If we write a story that doesn't challenge the findings, then we have implicitly underscored the validity of the article. So that becomes a transformative use. Our article is not being used to inform professionals about the research. It's being used to comment on the value of that research. So to think of this another way, it's kind of the difference between plagiarism and creativity. It's not just a matter of kind of stenographically recording the contents of a scientific article. It's using that article to inform readers with knowledge that we as journalists think they ought to have. Right. And of course, that's transparent. We say where we got that from and explain what we're doing. You know, plagiarism is a, is a different thing, and that involves use of language without clear indication where it came from. So it sounds as if uh, in the kind of in the legal realm, scholars and experts and, and judges are all kind of converging on this idea that as long as you in some way transform the thing that you're quoting or using, it's okay. Uh, but it also sounds like not everybody gets that yet. And a lot of publishers are quite skittish about uh, reproducing material from from other sources. A mutual friend of ours, uh, the science writer George Johnson, ran into some trouble with this in a book he was writing. That's right. He wanted to reproduce an image hand-drawn by Isaac Newton from the 1600s. Now, there was no U.S. copyright law in the 1600s, and indeed there was no U.S. in, <laughs> right. in the 1600s. And uh, so he thought that wouldn't be an issue. It turns out that the sole copy of Newton's journal in which that drawing appears, is owned by one of the colleges at 
Oxford University, and they have reproduction rights. So he had to pay them to reproduce that drawing, even though the drawing was in the public domain. And he wound up spending, I think, something like 150 pounds <laughs> for that privilege. And he promised the editor a, a dinner on top of that. And Fortunately for George, the editor never showed up to collect on the dinner, so he got a little bit of a break. Isaac Newton, uh, I, I looked him up. He didn't even teach at Oxford. He taught at Cambridge. He taught at Cambridge, <laughs> which is another weird little yeah, sideline. Yeah, yeah. He, would, he would not be happy to have Oxford uh, in control of his journal, I'm just, sure. Just goes to show how murky this all is. I can't leave this discussion alone without bringing up a, a non-scientific case, and that is the song Happy Birthday. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I, I I understand that you have a birthday coming up. So yes, as, I, as, yes, I as do. 39 this year, is yeah, that right? That's, uh, that is correct. <laughs> okay. So, Happy Birthday. You thought that we could all sing Happy Birthday anytime we wanted, I'll bet, but you were wrong. <laughs> it turns out that Happy Birthday was owned by a music publisher, and the publisher was notorious for charging, say, documentary filmmakers large amounts of money to include a scene in which somebody sang happy birthday. And all of this flipped around in February of this year when a judge ruled that happy birthday was indeed in the public domain. And now that publisher is going to have to agree to a settlement at which it pays back millions of dollars it collected. So that opens the door for this unfortunate occurrence. Are you ready? <laughs> oh, oh. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. I'm not going to go any farther because we don't want our listeners to drop the podcast <laughs> altogether. But if I'd done that before February, it might cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm so happy to be able to sing to you now, David, without any charge at all. Well, Paul, I'm I'm uh, touched and, uh, <laughs> and I'm uh, relieved that that was a fair use of that song. Paul Rayburn writes about media and science for Undark. Paul, as always, thanks. Thanks. See you next month. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until next time, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.